It was right up against the two-year statue of limitations when they showed up at my door to serve me. I was in my pajamas. Often happens at the worst times, Thanksgiving dinner with family. I was at home getting ready for Christmas Eve. I think my children were probably five and two and a half. I worried about it, and I was sued pretty promptly afterwards. Welcome to the second episode of Doctors and Litigation, The L Word. This is a podcast for physicians about litigation and litigation stress, where we'll hear the voices of physicians who have been through it, as well as those of experts on the topic. Today, we are getting nitty gritty about the very first steps in the litigation process. For physicians who are new to the process or have never been sued, One of the many drivers of anxiety is their unfamiliarity with the legal world. You just don't know what's going to happen because it was never part of your training. I think it's a taboo subject. I don't remember uh, getting any training in in my residency about it. I had nothing. I was starting really from a very blank page. So today, we will begin the process of turning you from someone who is starting from a very blank page to someone who understands the process, anticipates its emotional impact, and knows the importance of seeking support and guidance. We'll start off by talking about the very first few steps of a lawsuit, what happens, the do's and don'ts, and how the initial process might affect you. You might have some warning that something's coming if there's been a request for records, for example, or an adverse event that you know of and recall. But once the wheels of the litigation process start turning, your involvement really starts the same way for all of us. You are served. And every physician I've talked to about this knows exactly where they were and the circumstances surrounding the time that they were given notice. And that's because it's an inherently acutely stressful event. It's a life-changing event, so it absolutely changes you as a person. It's that very first entrance into the world of litigation with the knowledge that the way you view your career will likely never be quite the same again. Yep, came right to my house. I was in my pajamas, answered the door, had not heard anything, no whisper, nothing. It was just blindsided. That was Dr. M, a physician who was named in a lawsuit two years after completing residency. Most people don't know how to react to that in a way. They, they, it, it's a new experience. That voice? That's Sarah Charles, MD, a psychiatrist who is credited with doing the very first research into how litigation affects physicians, and I'm incredibly honored to have spoken with her. In 1976, she endured a six-week malpractice trial in federal court, which she wrote about in her first book, Defendant a psychiatrist on trial for medical malpractice. That trial ended in a verdict in her favor, but the experience affected her so deeply that she felt the need to study the emotional, cognitive, and physical effects of malpractice litigation on physician defendants. It's, it's a profound human experience. She's also the author of Adverse Events, Stress, and Litigation, co-written with attorney Paul Frisch. Defendant is the book that my lawyer handed to me to read when I first showed up in his office, completely shell-shocked. And Adverse Events, Stress, and Litigation is a book that I recommend frequently. Dr. Charles also founded the website physicianlitigationstress.org, which is a free resource for physicians and other healthcare professionals. 
This site provides lists of articles and books in the medical and popular literature, as well as lists of links to other sites that may offer support to physicians. Full disclosure, I've recently joined their volunteer advisory board, but before that, I was a frequent visitor to the site, and I still highly recommend it as a starting point. We'll hear more from Dr. Charles in a minute. First, though, I want to introduce another expert on this topic, Dr. Eileen Brenner, MD. Dr. Brenner is a practicing emergency physician and the author of the book, How to Survive a Medical Malpractice Lawsuit. This book is a very handy primer on the nuts and bolts of the litigation process with definitions, practical advice, and it serves as a good roadmap of the process. Dr. Brenner spoke with me about the initial steps of the litigation process and some do's and don'ts. Uh, in my case, it was a sheriff that came to your door. Sometimes it's just a process server and you get served and that's the notice. And it's really scary and a million emotions are running through you. You may not have any clue what this is even about. It's true. When you're served, you may have been expecting it in the wake of an adverse event or you may be completely blindsided as I was. But even if you were expecting it, the exact timing of the notice will be a surprise. And there could be a long window between the adverse event you remember and the actual filing of the suit. You know, I saw him December of 2007 and got served with a letter at work, basically a certified letter in 2008, about a year later. You might be served at home or at work with papers by a sheriff in uniform, as happened to Dr. Brenner. Or it could be less dramatic. And sometimes, an attorney chooses their time to serve you in a way that's designed to impact you in the worst way possible. On a holiday, as you heard in the beginning, or, in one physician's case, soon after the death of her father, an event known to the attorney. In the introduction to Dr. Brenner's book, the foreword is written by physician Mark Plaster, and it reads, quote, I will never forget that Thanksgiving as long as I live. We had just offered our heartfelt thanks to God for a wonderful year when the doorbell rang. To my surprise, standing at the door in a blinding storm was a deputy sheriff, and I thought, what would bring you out on a night like this? There must have been a burglary in the neighborhood. And then he handed me the letter, shook his head, and said, I'm really sorry, doctor, to do this to you on Thanksgiving. It's just my job. I did not understand his apology until I saw the return address on the letter. It was a law firm, and I was being sued. I returned to the table and tried to act as if it was nothing, but I could not eat. My whole world, as well as my stomach, was turned upside down. There's a tremendously wide variation in what people feel, but I think shock is, is almost universal. That's Dr. Louise Andrew, MDJD, whom I introduced in the first podcast. The second would be denial that, that this is appropriate, and several people have made the, the comparison to the stages of grief, beginning with shock, then denial, then anger, then bargaining, then acceptance, etc. I, I don't know that any physician ever gets to the acceptance stage about a lawsuit if they felt it was completely unjustified. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to the initial complaint. Of course, after you're shocked by the receiving of the complaint, the next thing you're going to do is read it and probably reread it because the legal language they use is difficult if you're not used to it and it's formal and it's intimidating and also because they have chosen their words in a way to deliver maximum impact, to emphasize very strongly the ways in which your incompetence, your negligence has hurt someone. You may have conflicting emotions of feeling that this could 
not possibly be happening or that you don't deserve it, and simultaneously feeling horribly for the plaintiff, who usually was at some point your patient. I say usually because sometimes doctors get dragged into lawsuits just because their names were somewhere in the chart, not because they were involved in any significant way. And sometimes it gets even stranger. The physician involved was not me. It was somebody who looked like me at the time. We both had beards and, you know, had dark hair and, and such. But even though my name was never on the chart, it didn't matter. And it took seven years until I was finally dropped from the suit. I do believe I said in the first podcast that the system is totally messed up. But I digress. Let's say for the case of argument that this was your patient. The emotions are complex and will differ from person to person, but the impact is usually quite significant. You worry about what happens next. Maybe you worry about your reputation, your job. You might even worry about the plaintiff. You might worry about your finances or the impact this will have on your family. You worry about whether you're as good a doctor as you thought you were. The accusations themselves have an impact before the process even starts in earnest. Here's Dr. Charles again. I think, first of all, uh, a lawsuit, which is an accusation that you've failed or done something wrong or you're not competent or whatever it says in the complaint, it's an assault on your sense of self, your sense of integrity. And uh, I don't think there's probably any emotional event that is really more hurtful to someone's sense of self and self-esteem than an accusation that what you have dedicated your life to, you're not very good at it. But what you have to understand is that this is a strategy. It is no accident that you are made to feel this way. This is the opening move in a long chess game, a tactical move in what is often not the pursuit of justice so much as a game of strategy and money. I think it's important for doctors to know, too, that if you look at the statistics about medical malpractice litigation, about 85% of the cases end up with no payment to the plaintiff. So that the real thrust is the accusation that you've been sued, not the outcome. Real injury occurs right at the beginning, no matter what happens to this suit even though in most instances, you're going to win. The statistics are that you're going to win. She quotes the now-deceased journalist Andy Rooney, a former 60 Minutes commentator, who was accused of making bigoted statements, a charge that he denied. He said, it is not clear to me whether I have been destroyed or not, but I know that a denial from anyone does not carry anywhere near the same weight as an accusation. And that's absolutely true. So, you have been accused of malpractice. And I understand that you may feel as though you may bear some responsibility for a bad outcome, or that you feel you made a mistake, which absolutely happens to most of us during some point in our careers. Or you may believe that you did everything you possibly could have, but just wish things were different. It's entirely true that some plaintiffs have been harmed and have justified grievances, and that is indeed what this system is supposed to be for. But in all of these cases, justified or more often not, the emotional manipulation that occurs intensifies every natural human response to these accusations. 
When you put these triggers in the proper context, with the knowledge that the emotional component is an expected part of the process and something the plaintiff's attorneys intend to exploit as much as you let them, then you'll be in a much better position to manage the things to come. So my first piece of advice in dealing with all of this, train yourself to respond rather than react. I'm paraphrasing my friend, Dr. Jamie Hope, and her excellent lecture on reframing. If you've dealt with a difficult patient with, say, borderline personality disorder, you have probably had the experience of knowing you are being emotionally manipulated, having your buttons pushed, and once you identified that fact, it probably became much easier to respond professionally instead of react emotionally. We'll talk more about this later because it becomes crucial at deposition and at trial. So frame your emotions within that context and start to learn to respond rather than react. It's harder than it sounds, I get that, but that is your first goal. So I wanna move now into the practical about the very first steps involved in litigation. You've been served, you understand that the emotions that you're feeling now are expected and normal, and you appreciate the attorney's intent to exploit your emotional weakness at this time. And you'll start to work on reframing things in that light so that you can respond rather than react. Now, what concrete steps do you take first? Let's hear from Dr. Brenner again. The first thing you need to do is get a lawyer before you do anything else. And how would you get a lawyer? Well, if you don't have a lawyer, the first thing you do is contact your insurance company and establish a claim. And if you don't know who your insurance company is and your policy and whatever, you'll have to contact your employer. But be careful. Your employer can also be a co-defendant. So you don't say too much. You just say, I've been served about a case and I need information about my policy to contact the insurance. Okay, got it. Step number one, call your insurance carrier and file a claim. Now, one point I do want to add here is that if you suspect a lawsuit is coming based on a request for records or just the knowledge of an adverse event, do not wait for the official notice to contact your carrier. It's always best for them to be involved as soon as you even start to worry about a claim, and they can meet with you and give you assistance on how to best navigate things after that. If you don't know who your carrier is, although I really strongly suggest that you know about your carrier and your policy before you are ever sued, if you don't know who that is, then call your employer, but don't say too much yet. Your insurance company will help you find a lawyer. Now, you may have some choice in that matter, and you may not have choice in that matter, depending on your policy, but your lawyer is going to become very important to you. They are going to be your guide when you're feeling like a stranger in a strange land. This is their job, and it's their responsibility to be your advocate. And we'll talk more about this later, but here's how one doctor mentioned her attorney. In my initial meetings with my attorney, I came in feeling the need to defend myself. And it was my attorney, God bless him, who said, you don't need to defend yourself to me. I'm here on your side. Here's what Dr. Brenner had to say about the process of choosing an attorney. How to pick an attorney as far as, you know, what, what company and such. If you know people who have been sued, they could certainly recommend somebody. Obviously, you can talk to your employer, and, and if they've had a number of cases and they said, this law firm or this lawyer did a great job, you can always try to specifically request. But 
you might not know anyone in, in the process at all, in which case you just ask for insurance company recommendations and you want to insist to have a partner. I don't, I don't want to diss junior partners in, in law firms, but law works just the same way as medicine. The more you've been practicing, the better you are. And if you have a potential high value case, the last thing you want is somebody who's been doing it for the first time. You want someone really experienced. And so that's not always easy to do. You may not be assigned a partner and you may have to insist and insist again. They may not be the one who does your day-to-day stuff, but at least they're the super, like an attending would supervise residents. Same idea. You want at least a partner running your case. Again, it's still not always possible, but if you don't try, you'll never get it. Now, once you have an attorney you trust, trust your attorney. You will have a chance to talk through the case and through the medicine. They may ask you to write down everything you can remember, every detail, because as the years drag on, memory can be fallible. That will be privileged information, meaning it's protected by your attorney-client relationship. So make sure that whatever communications you have about the details of your case are within that attorney-client bubble, written as letters, for example. Although you absolutely should talk to family, friends, or colleagues in generalities about what is happening to you and how you are coping, do not talk to anyone else about the nitty-gritty details of your case without your lawyer's instruction. And one reason is because the plaintiff's attorneys will ask you at deposition about who else knows the case details so that they may depose them if they want to. Another reason is that other parties may try to manipulate you into giving more information than you should, counting on your naivete. And they tried calling me on the phone after that. And I'm like, I don't think I can talk to you like this. So luckily I had the, you know, I was like, I need to get this to the malpractice company and um, not, you know, say anything to anybody until we figure out what this is all about. That's Dr. M, whose voice you heard earlier. She states that the plaintiff's attorneys contacted her directly by phone, hoping for more information about her case. Their attorneys are sneaky, (laughs) as you probably know. I do know, and now so do you. So don't fall for any traps, including the trap of saying too much to a possible co-defendant. The key with co-defendants is you're only friends until you're not. It's sort of like Game of Thrones. They are your allies until they get a better offer and they're no longer your allies. And so that's how you have to treat them. That's an unpleasant thought. But unless you have a shared defense, it's good advice. We'll talk more about that in another podcast. But the point really is just to be smart about who you talk about this case with. And when in doubt, again, ask your attorney. Now, there is the very human urge to discuss the medical decision-making with other people who know medicine. You know, when you have a tough case, the first thing you want to do is talk to another skilled physician about it because medicine is full of nuance and tough choices, no matter how much litigators like to paint it as algorithmic and black and white. All I can say about that is you really need to be able to say under oath at your deposition that you have not discussed the details of this case with anyone but your attorney. In some states, spouses are exempt, and peer review and M&M review have in the past also been protected, but we're seeing some attacks on this in certain states as well. So clarify with your attorney first and 
Other than that, it's best to be as vague and hypothetical as possible. Focus more on how you're managing and how you can best be supported. So what do we have so far? Call your insurance company and start the claims process. Talk to friends and family about what's happening to you, but be smart about divulging any other details. Get an attorney you trust and talk through the case with them. Your attorney is going to help you through the next hurdles as what is called the discovery phase begins. This is when lawyers on both sides start to gather information and records to help their cases. Both sides request and exchange information, and you may have to answer questions about the case called interrogatories. I remember the interrogatories in my case were hugely frustrating because the questions were from someone who clearly didn't understand the first thing about the medicine at hand to the point where it made it difficult to even answer what I thought were totally absurd questions. But again, this is where your lawyer will help you. A later part of the discovery process will be the depositions, and preparation for this is key. We'll be devoting a good amount of time to this in a later podcast. Now, while all of this is starting up, one other thing you should know is that something unpleasant is also likely to be coming your way depending on your state, and that is an investigation by your state Department of Health or your state Board of Licensure and Discipline. This is often automatically triggered by the filing of the malpractice suit, and you will likely have to answer to them about the events. And this, in and of itself, is stressful. Remember what Sarah Charles said about the very accusation being distressing? But it's also a routine part of the process in many states. Again, your lawyer will be familiar with this process and can usually advise you on this as well. Just remember, this happens to every doctor in your state who is being sued, and that's probably a lot of them. Now, I have one other thing on your to-do list for this early phase before we talk about some don'ts. That next to-do is get a book, or more than one book. I do recommend Dr. Brenner's and Dr. Charles' books, and I have no financial stake in those, but there are many of them. Go online and browse, read the reviews, buy a couple, and read them. And I'm glad you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you find it helpful, but detailed books are also quite helpful for support and reference, and I wish every doctor would do this before they were ever even named. We should all be educated on this subject, as most of us will have to deal with it at some point. So, do get a book. And now, a couple of don'ts. And these are critical. Here is a very big one. Do not change anything in the chart. No alterations, no addenda, nothing. Don't even access the chart. And addendums are good, unless you've been sued, and then they're very bad. With today's EMRs, it's easy to see who's accessing the chart and when. If there's even a whiff of you trying to change anything, the plaintiff's attorneys will paint it as you attempting to alter the record in your favor, and that will look very, very bad. Leave it up to your insurance company or your attorney to get the records. Another thing, as tempting as it might be, do not contact the plaintiff or their family directly. You may feel very personally that you want them to know what really happened or that you were trying your best or that you did everything right, or that you are also upset about what happened to the plaintiff, or that you are sorry. You may be losing sleep over the loss of this relationship alone, but once the suit is filed, you just can't do this anymore. My final don't for the day is don't despair. This process is very hard. 
especially in the beginning when the wounds are fresh and everything about this world is foreign. But remember, you are in very good company and that many doctors that you admire as role models have been in this exact position. They are role models of resilience. And so are the doctors that you hear in this podcast. All of these voices are of physicians who are still practicing, who have navigated this successfully just as you will, one step at a time. We're just starting to scratch the surface, so stick with me. In next month's podcast, you'll hear the story of one physician's lawsuit from case to resolution. It's a great illustrator of the many painful parts of the litigation process, and we will break it down bit by bit, turn by turn. It's a tough listen, so the podcast after that will feature interviews with psychologists and other experts on resources and coping strategies, and how to know if you are at risk from malpractice stress syndrome, and more about what it even is. I'll say it over and over, you are not alone. And in fact, the grand majority of physicians will be in your shoes at one point or other during their career. We need each other to talk honestly and openly about litigation to remove the stigma and the shame that so many feel unnecessarily. We'll see you next time.